This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Today's interview comes to you courtesy of two films. The first one is Plant Pure Nation, which is a documentary directed by Nelson Campbell, who is one of T. Colin Campbell's sons. And in that documentary, there was an interview with an oncologist from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine named Dr. Rekha Chaudhry. The second movie is Forks Over Knives, which is the movie that first introduced Dr. Chaudhry to the concept that diet could affect cancer, could affect cancer initiation, progression, or outcome. And for those of us in the plant-based community, it's hard to believe that board-certified trained cancer specialist, and Dr. Chaudhry is also an assistant professor of medicine in Cincinnati, that this information is not common knowledge. And Dr. Chaudhry, when she saw Forks Over Knives, she couldn't believe it also. And so she was unwilling to shove this new data under the rug. And she put herself to uh, a fair amount of... uh, Maybe scorn and ridicule is too too strong, but uh, certainly suspicious suspicion when she invited T. Colin Campbell to conduct grand rounds at her university. And the further she dug, the more amazed she was. The animal studies showing that specifically the amount of animal protein in the diet could turn cancer cells on and off, and all the other evidence that Colin Campbell has amassed and many others have amassed around the relationship between diet and cancer. So at that point, she had kind of become amazed that medical education for oncologists completely ignores this huge, huge body of evidence and that her own education had been so sorely lacking. So in our conversation, we talk about why oncology in particular has been such a resistant branch of medicine to dietary and lifestyle interventions, much more so than cardiology, endocrinology, and, and other specialties. So without further ado, Dr. Rekha Chaudhry, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, how are you? Very well. So I um, have been preparing a little bit for this interview by, by kind of looking up your your stuff and your, your practice and your publications. And I, I want to I want to start by just reading the name of one of your, I guess it's, it's uh, in press, one of your studies, um, which is late onset post-renal transplant plasma cell dyscrasia presenting as retroperitoneal plasmacytoma treated with borzimab and dexamethasone review of the literature. And... <laughs> Maybe you know. Maybe it it it, uh, it would be useful to find out what any of that means. But the the main thing is, I'm just I'm so amazed that you've gone from from that level of uh, of, of research to um, advocating a plant based diet, and I, I find that just a, a really fascinating combination of interests. Yeah, and you know what? And I always tell people um, that. I'm an oncologist. I mean, I went to medical school. I believe in modern medicine, right? I believe in modern medicine. I believe in chemotherapy. I believe in surgery. I believe in radiation on, you know, radiation therapy. So I'm not advocating an alternative medicine way or a complementary medicine way. I'm in, in advocating an integrative medicine way. So 
integrating plant-based diets and modern medicine thoughts. And I think, I really, I really think that a lot of physicians, the reason they have such a hard time with this plant-based diet is they're scared. They think that, they think that, they literally think their patients are going to stop all their therapy, stop all their drugs, and just go on a plant-based diet, which is fine, but that is threatening to them, you know? And so that's why I try to take a more middle-of-the-road kind of approach and say, you know, we still need modern medicine in this world. I mean, modern medicine has gotten us really far, you know? Polio, the cure for a lot of modern diseases, infectious diseases, and things like that. And still, in, in cancer... I mean, leukemia, childhood leukemia is being cured by, you know, chemotherapy. So I think that that, those are really important things, but there are still so many cancers out there that don't have a cure and don't have have any kind of um, way to treat them. And that's where we can really, really help, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, so I'd love to hear your, your story. Um, my understanding is that you uh, were turned on to the plant-based evidence uh, at, a, at a, a preliminary screening of a, of a film? Yeah. So what happened to me was I used to be one of those oncologists that would, you know, the patients would come see me and I'd say, you know, don't worry about what you're eating. Eat all the sugar you want. You know, I'm thinking in my head, you're probably going to die anyway. You know, I mean, I used to be one of those kind of roll my eyes at these, you know, alternative kind of ideas, you know, oncologists. But I used to treat, I used to treat um, lung cancer. So I don't smoke and my patients were heavy smokers. So I didn't see myself in them. You know, I was like, oh, this 60 year old man who smoked his whole life is not me. So I was, I approached it very clinically, very almost sterilely if you want to say it, say it that way. And then about five or six years ago, I started doing neuro-oncology, which is neuro-oncology is brain tumors. And a lot of brain tumors, some of the most severe ones, have about a 3% five-year survival. Okay? So it's a dire prognosis if you get it. And all of a sudden, these were patients that were me. I mean, these were my, I was treating a 38-year-old woman with three kids. I was treating a 22-year-old girl, um, soccer player who had, you know, played soccer all life, never done anything wrong. I was treating all these young, vibrant, healthy, intelligent people, and they were suddenly me. And I I got really anxious, actually, to what happened. I... I would see my husband has a a bunch of life insurance now and, you know, and he, I got so anxious that he was, he said to me, you, you need to do something about this. I mean, this is driving you to the brink of, I mean, of anxiety. And so one day I was just watching a movie and I, and I saw Forks Over Knives actually. Hmm. And on TV, on, on just on Netflix, I just popped it in. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'll just watch it. And I was I was stunned by, you know, the Eccleston data I think we kind of know a lot about because we've been taught in this culture that if you eat right cardiovascular, you won't have cardiovascular disease. But I was really, really stunned by the kind of the China study and the Colin Campbell data. 
And so that's why I went back and read the China study, and I, I started reading everything I get my hands on. And I invited Dr. Campbell to give a grand rounds at University of Cincinnati, and he gave a grand, grand rounds and kind of blew us away with the scientific data behind this. And, you know, kind of saying, you know, a lot of people came up to me and said, why haven't we ever read these studies? Why haven't we ever heard about this? And all of a sudden, you know, it made scientific sense to me like chemotherapy does, you know? Mm. And it gave me hope. It gave me a sense of control. And I think it gives my patients a sense of control that they can somewhat control their outcome. They're not relying on physicians to control their outcome, you know? Yeah, so, that's really interesting that, that it was seeing patients who were sort of blameless that led you to this? Because you might think, you might draw the, the uh, opposite conclusion and say, well, if I'm dealing with 60-year-old smokers, then I can see the link between lifestyle and disease. But with a 22-year-old soccer player, clearly medicine is about, uh, you know, fixing people who've just been given lemons for bodies. I'm curious what made, right. you, what made you think that we had some control given what you'd seen in, in young, blameless people. Yeah, because I think that, you know, I needed control, the patients needed control, and I knew instinctively, you know, in, in cancer, we always talk about what's called a two-hit hypothesis. It's called the Nudson two-hit hypothesis. So the hypothesis is that genetically, you have, genetically, you have a, maybe a predisposition to cancer, right? Uh-huh. And then... You have something on top of that, an epigenetic change, an epigenetic change. So that's called where your cancer cells are turned on and turned off, okay? And one of the things that, um, you know, we know turns on and turns off cancer cells is, is smoking, right? Um, and one of the things that we know turns off and on cancer cells is alcohol, right? We know that very well. And but we never thought of diet as turning on and turning off cancer cells. And that's why when I heard, you know, Dr. Campbell his mice studies, I was thinking, can we really make epigenetic changes? Changes on top of our already, you know, DNA with diet? I mean it just it seemed crazy to me um, at the time, and then obviously now I've studied it more, and, you know, it's not so crazy. Um, you know, you've heard about the new recent, the w, uh, the World Health Organization, the WHO, just put out, um, put processed meat in the same category as smoking and asbestos, right. um, That's, and that... they just come out with that data. Yeah, this is a very... Uh good time for us to be talking because there's uh, there's a lot of debate about that, a lot of controversy. Um, and, I, and I'm seeing a lot of resistance from, you know, the mainstream medical profession, people saying things like, well, the, the, the risk, you know, the, the, the risk isn't that great. Um, that, you know, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard doctors saying that, well, you know, we can get cancer from the sun and from breathing, so what's 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 your take on how the medical well, profession as a whole you know, is reacting? I saw to this? the New York Times. The New York Times quoted some numbers 
that said something like, and I may not get these numbers exactly right, but something like there are 200,000 deaths a year from alcohol, I think it was. And, um, you know, only 33,000 deaths from processed meat, right? So they're saying the significance of it is much less. But I think that's because if you go to see your oncologist for colorectal cancer, he's not going to ask you how many hot dogs do you eat a day, right? Right. So we know as an oncologist, when you see a patient for lung cancer, you say to them, you know, how much do you smoke? When did you start smoking? When did you quit? How many packs a day do you smoke? Do you use chewing tobacco? I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, that is what we first learn in medical school when you're taking a social history. Every time you go to your doctor, I mean, they ask you that, right? But does your doctor ever ask you, how many hot dogs do you have in a day? What, you know, what, how much sausage do you have in a day, right? No, they don't ask you that. I mean, so to say that, you know, that number, the 33,000 deaths linked to processed meat, I'm surprised they even got that many because I don't think they know who eats processed meat and who doesn't. So I think the more interesting study that they didn't talk about, that the World Health Organization didn't talk about, but I'm very familiar with, is something called the EPIC study, and it's the European Prospective Investigation in Cancer, okay? And it's a large study, I mean, large study, and what they, it's 500,000 people in this study. So imagine, are you a college football fan? Uh, no. At all? <laughs> But okay. I'll, I'll pretend so not, to be if one. For the, if, well, if you're from Ohio, you'd be a college football fan because we're we're Buckeyes here. Right. Okay. So the Ohio State Stadium sits about 105,000 people. So this study has basically the whole Ohio State Stadium filled five times over. That's how many people are in this study, right? Right. You know, it's in 10 countries in Europe, right? Okay. And they followed these people out, and the and it's, it's very early in their study conclusions, but the only thing that they can say for sure from this study is that processed meat increases your risk of cancer, especially gastrointestinal cancer. So, I mean, to say that, you know, to say, and it's, it's by two times the risk if you eat enough processed meat. The curve, our curves are straight. So the thing is, is that, I think that physicians say, well, the risk is small anyway. Well, no, the risk of colorectal cancer is high. It's the third most common cancer, right? Or fourth most common cancer, a third leading cause of death. The risk of colorectal cancer is high. It's just that we don't take that history about processed meat. And that's, that's a change that we need to start making in the medical field is we need to start asking people, how much processed meat do you eat? You know? Mm. I think that's an important part of our social history that we don't take because we don't want to place blame where we're not sure it's there, right? It's very hard. I don't know. You've probably never been in this situation, but it's hard to see a lung cancer patient and then say to them, you know, in the middle of your history, so how much do you smoke? And they usually start crying at this point and say, you know, I smoke two packs a day and that's why I'm here. And I regret smoking it. I know I don't even like it. I don't know why I'm doing it. You know, I mean, it's a very emotional impact to place blame for cancer. So I think, I think that's going to be really hard cultural change for people. Mm. 
But I agree with you. I agree with the medical community has mocked this and not accepted it. Yeah. So, so one thing I suspect, I've suspected about the World Health Organization data is that it significantly understates the risk. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean to, to come out with a statement like that, they had to have overwhelming data. I mean, because you have to imagine the pressures they get from, you know, from the industries, you know, the meat and dairy industries. So to come out with a statement like that, I mean, they've gotten a lot of criticism. They must have had overwhelming data. Right. So, so I mean, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, we've known for some time, especially based on the epic data that processed meat causes is linked to GI cancers. You know, and red meat, and if you see in their statement, they said red meat is probably linked. We just don't have enough evidence, you know. So it's, I think it's linked, too, if they just can't give the evidence, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so, so some of my friends um, who are, you know, medical researchers or, um, you know, very, very well versed in, in study design and epidemiology will say things like, Okay, so you, you found a bunch of studies that show, either, you know, suggest causality or, or correlation, but what about all the studies that don't? So for, from your perspective, I can, you know, we can, we can tell you're, you know, a really serious researcher. Um, right. is, is there, you know, is the jury still out, uh, especially around, around cancer? Because, you know, Dr. Yeah. Esselstyn was a, a breast cancer surgeon, and he chose to study heart disease because he thought it would be easier to find a connection, but you know, it's, right. it's, it's been, um, 30 years almost since he started his study. How sure should we be that, that light well, diet can affect our risk of getting cancer? Well, I talked to Dr. Campbell about this extensively because we talk about this all the time, right? The problem in oncology, okay, is oncology is, there's two types of studies. There's three types of major studies. So if you bear with me for a minute, I have to kind of, um, um, talk about this before I can talk about why I think that there is a link now. So there's three types of studies. There's a retrospective study, which you say, I'm going to look at this group of people after they have the cancer, right, and see what happens to them, right? That's not a very powerful study, and most people agree that looking at things after the fact is not powerful enough. Then there's what's called a prospective study, which is the European Prospective Investigation in Cancer. But all that did was look at people. It followed people out, looked at what their lifestyle choices were, and looked at what happened to them. So critics of that study may say, well, you know, you're, linking, you're basing it on the processed meat, but how about the fact that most of those people lived near a nuclear plant, Right. Right, so you know it's hard to take out all variables. Variables. So in oncology, what we need, what the gold standard is, is what's called randomized control data. So we need to take a person and put them on one chemotherapy and put them on another chemotherapy and then follow them out and see whose cancer does better. You, and you need to randomly allocate them through a computer. And everybody has to be blinded to which person got that. And that's the only way oncologists will accept this data. Cardiologists, heart doctors, are used to accepting data 
from large population trials, you know. But as uh, in the oncology world, we're only used to accepting data that is randomly allocated to one drug versus another drug because we've been brought up in the pharmaceutical era, right? We've been brought up in oncology talking about chemotherapy all the time. Huh. So that's been the major that's been the major criticism of Dr. Campbell's data and and a lot of people's data of the Epic trial that it's not randomized. Okay, but Dr. Dr. Campbell's answer to that is it is very 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 difficult to do a randomized controlled study with diet. So if I take you and I take another man your age with your same lifestyle and I randomize you to one diet and randomize it's hard to fall, it's hard to put you on a diet for years and maintain control of that. Right. And and one of the criticisms I've actually seen of the the second Esselstyn's trial, which was published in 2014 of 198 people, yes. was that right. they were being told that it would help. <laughs> like right. like that's a confound. Like like Well, we no, no, it is. It is. It is a problem. It is a problem because if you pay attention to it, the data gets better by nature, right? So he had no placebo arm, right? He had nobody that they were instructing them on a different diet. But there is one study that looked at this, okay? So there is a study that was just published September 15th in JAMA Internal Medicine, which is a big journal of ours, okay? It's a study done in Spain, and it's 7,000 patients, 7,447 patients on that study. And what they did is they randomly, again, by a computer, okay, randomly allocated patients to a Mediterranean diet, which was basically plant-based, plus olive oil, a Mediterranean diet, plus nuts, and a low-fat diet. And they ran into the same concerns because the Mediterranean diet arms were getting a lot of attention, right? And the low-fat diet, they kind of just said, go ahead and keep eating what you're eating. And then people criticized the study because they said, well, of course, the people that are getting more attention are going to do better, right? So what they did is they very early on gave the same attention to all three arms, okay? So the, the Mediterranean diet plus olive oil, Mediterranean diet plus nuts, and a low-fat arm. They gave the same attention, same cooking classes, same kind of, you know, um, visits. Well, what they found, and it's a very early study. The study just enrolled its last patient in 2009, so it's only been out for a few years. What they found is they found a 62% reduction in breast cancer incidence, okay? The 62% reduction in the amount of breast cancer if you were in the olive oil plus Mediterranean diet arm versus the... Um, versus the low-fat diet arm. Mm -hmm. And that 62% okay. is relative risk? That's 62% reduction in incidence. It's absolute. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's relative risk. Yeah, it's a relative risk. It's 62% less breast cancer incidence. So this is, so it's, it's kind of hard to look, and I, I'm not a statistician, but the problem is, is we're not looking at death here. We're looking at incidence. Right? right? So we're looking at the amount of breast cancers diagnosed. doesn't say anything about how advanced they were or their death risk. So, we, you know, so in that case, you know, I mean, it'll have to be followed out longer. I mean, you know, they only had like 35 cases of breast cancer or 33 cases of breast cancer. So, you know, 
but it was a clinically significant, it was statistically significant reduction. So I'm not saying, I mean, this is very early in the study and we have to follow it out longer. But the really, really interesting thing about this study is, A, it's randomized. So you can't say in this study that, well, you know, there are other biases, right? This was randomized and they had a placebo arm, right? Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing that my husband, when I presented his study to him, he brought up, he said, well, if this was a drug study, they would have closed the control arm, right? right? If you're running a study of drug A versus a placebo, right? If you're running a study of drug A versus a placebo drug, right, and you find out that drug A works much, much better than the placebo, you would have to close that study because it wouldn't be ethical to continue the study. Correct? Right. But because we don't look at food as medicine, I don't think they've closed the study. I'm not, I'm, I actually, I haven't read anything where they've closed the study. Because we don't look at food as medicine. We look at it as, you know, even the study leaders don't believe in it as much. Right. And this is, this is a very short time. I mean, the study was run from 2003 to 2009. This is not years of eating a Mediterranean diet, you know? I mean, this is, this is a very short time. Sorry, that's funny. Right. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, that, in you know, what, what oncologists would view as, as credible evidence, because there's obviously a lot of problems with randomizing people into diet. Um, yeah. You know, it, to, to a certain extent, it, it, it's great that they were able to find a control group, but, you know, I, I find Esselstyn's study to be much more applicable to the real world, and that sometimes when you create a study in which you, ha you have a lot of control over variables, it becomes less and less relevant to how people actually live their lives. Yeah, um, yeah I think, I think the, the, the problem that I've heard from other physicians with Esselstyn's data, and I, I, mean, I, I'm, I think what he's done is amazing, and the patience and the determination it took to do that kind of study, you know, um, is just amazing. Um, um, because a lot of people would, a lot of scientists wouldn't have the patience to wait 20 years, you know? Right. Um, so so it's, it, it's really kind of amazing the data that he was able to publish. But, you know, I was talking to a, I, you know, I wanted to bring him for our internal medicine grand round at Dr. Ethelson. Uh -huh. And they said, well, I don't think that study's relevant because, because, those people on that study were better to begin with. Those were more determined people to begin with, right? You're taking people who are very driven to begin with, and they would have been able to do that, and that's what made their outcomes better, kind of similar to what you were saying. You know, they, they had, if you pay attention to it, it'll get better anyway, you know? But I don't, I mean, that may be true over, you know, a year or so, but to take 198 patients over 20 years, you know, I, I don't know if you can really, really say that, you know. I mean, and that's the criticism sometimes of um, Dean Ornish's data, too, you know, is that while they were having stress reduction, they were exercising, of course they're going to do better, you know. Um, and, I, and I say to patients when they say that, they're like, what do you think of that? And I say, I I don't really care. I want to be on that top arm, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, you can criticize Esselstyn. You can criticize Esselstyn's data, but 
who do you want to be? Do you want to be one of the patients who had your heart disease regression, regress, or do you want to be not, right? You can criticize the data, but yeah, that's... in the end, the question is, where do you want to be, you know? I see, that's, that's what I, when I think about, you know, all the data that I've looked at and all the studies, and every study is flawed in some way, right? There's, no, there's never oh, going to be course, a perfect yeah. study. No but perfect when study. I think about, like, what convinced me, like, at a, at a deep level that really convinced me, that wasn't just sort of, you know, proof text for me to go and talk to other people, but really got me to understand the link and change my own diet, it frankly was international data on rates of cancer in different countries. Like, it was completely correlational. There was no control group. It was just, look, there's been one case of prostate cancer or 11 cases of prostate cancer in Japan this entire year. You know, there's almost no colorectal cancer among South African blacks. It's like, clearly, we have the power somehow or other, when you combine that with migration studies, so we prove it's not just genetics. Like, for me, that's kind of end of story. And, and I appreciate all the, all the yeah. additional research people are doing, but it's not necessary for me. Yeah, for me, that wasn't as convincing. It's interesting. That wasn't as convincing because I was kind of, when I saw that data, I thought, well, what if in Japan they meditate every day? How can you separate that? You know, what if in Japan they have much less stress? What if in Japan they have a family system? Or, you know, I mean, it, what, how can you attribute that to diet alone? But what really convinced me, I mean, what was really profoundly kind of moving for me when I first started looking into this was really the mice studies that, that you know, Campbell did a long time ago. Because, you know, you're taking mice. I mean, this is not, this is, I mean, all the animal studies, this is not, you know, they don't live in a high rise or one one mouse isn't poor and one mouse isn't rich or one mouse doesn't have a stressful job and the other mouse has a not stressful job. You know what I mean? I mean, it's really, when you look at animal study data, I mean, it's really, really, really controlled. And I know that's hard to extrapolate to human data, but we do it all the time with chemotherapy, right? We do it all the time with chemotherapy, you know? In animals, this just evaporated the tumor, so it must work in humans, you know? So... I, that was very, that really kind of made me think, wow, this is not just someone's idea that diet might be better for you. I mean, there is laboratory data to look at this, you know, because I think, you know, my big movement, I think patients are convinced. I don't think you have to convince a patient who has cancer to try something that might help them, right? I don't think that, that's not hard at all. I have patients coming to me all the time that are willing to do anything. You know, mm-hmm. I think our real, our real mission, or at least my real mission, is to try to just expose the medical profession to this from a scientific perspective, you know, and to just expose it. To, I just gave a lecture this weekend, um, and one of my colleagues, who is kind of not a believer all the time in all this, you know, mm-hmm. he's very scientific, engineering background kind of person. And he got up there after I gave my talk, and he said, you know, we are never taught this in medical school. We don't get – nobody has ever talked to me about the impact of diet and how it affects your cancer risk. Nobody's ever talked to me about that. And it's – you know, I would have liked to have learned about that. 
So I think sometimes just exposure, just exposing the medical students to it, whether they believe it or not, whether they believe it or not, is is going to make huge, huge changes. Huge. Right. You know? Well, w- one of the things that I, I really um, took home when I was working on Dr. Campbell's second book, Whole, with him, is how many people didn't regard him as a real scientist because he was um, – you know, arguing against the the sole use of reductionism, um, so I think you know I'm, I'm wondering how much of like you can you can have like sometimes it confuses me that we have smart people who are all scientists disagreeing about stuff when we're all looking at the same evidence, but there's we're looking at it through very different lenses. Are as you mentioned between the oncologists and the cardiologists. Yeah. Um, right. So how how do we talk to each other? Do we do we need do you know, so do we need to do really really reductionist studies? Um, yes. Okay. I so. think that's the only way, and 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 I don't think that. I think that's the only way to convince the medical community. You know, to have a study like the Mediterranean diet randomized kind of control. You know, what I mean, because that's the only way we've at least in oncology. That's the only way we learn. That's the only way we kind of um, talk in our circle. That's the language we speak, you know, per se. And so, and I think if you can touch one medical student, if you can show them one study that affects them, and they go on into primary care, and they recommend it, you know, they see, what, 40 patients a day, and they recommend it to one patient, I mean, you've impacted a lot of people, right? Right. So, I... I think that's really – my husband is an orthopedic surgeon, and um, he's starting to talk to his patients about it because, you know, one of the leading causes of arthritis is having a high BMI, having a high body mass index, you know. Uh-huh. So he'll tell them, you know, the risks of the surgery are very high at your, at your obesity level, right? So he recommends that they go on a whole food plant-based diet, right, so the complications will be less. And he gets a lot of mixed results. I mean, some people go to his, you know, PR person and complain. You know, they go they go to his patient relations person and complain that he called me fat. I don't want to ever see him again kind of thing, you know. Uh-huh. And um, other people really take, listen to him, do it, lose the weight, and get the surgery. And they're so grateful. So, you know, food is something emotional. You know, I mean, it's an emotional, cultural part of us, you know. I mean, um, I have patients when they die of head and neck cancer, and the only thing they want to do is put something in their mouth. They don't want to, you know, they realize they may choke to death, you know, if they put food in their mouth. But that's part of who they are is eating. You know, we're humans. Eating food is part of who we are, you know. And so to ask someone to change something that they've been eating their whole life and the media and the culture has been telling them is what they need their whole life, it's a really, especially physicians, you know, who have probably all of them have been eating. You know, actually, it's really funny. I ran into one of um, my radiation oncologist colleagues, and he goes, did you see that study? He's like, I went home and ate a hot dog just in rebellion of that study of that data. Huh. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's 
an uphill battle, but there are people fighting it. Well, so, so, so I'd like to ask you about your, um, your experience working with, with cancer patients. Um, yeah. So what, one of the things that I've heard a lot on social media in, in the wake of the World Health Organization report is, you know, there are some things that if you give up, life isn't worth living, right? Like I'd rather increase my risk a little bit than give up my hot dogs or my red meat or my especially my bacon. And I'm wondering when you're dealing with people who are not hypothetically thinking about their illness in 10 or 20 years, but are staring at a diagnosis, are going through chemo, are experiencing the, the disease process on themselves and on their families, do they change their minds? Do they start wishing they had done oh, things yeah. differently? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they don't wish that they'd eaten differently because, there's, you know, most people, again, don't know the strong link between processed meat and cancer. So, you know, smokers definitely, I mean, they have so much regret. I had a patient the other day who was a World War II veteran, um, and he said, I never liked smoking, but when I was in in France, in World War II, they wouldn't let me have a break unless it was a smoke break. So because I wanted to take a break, I, I started smoking. And now I here I am. I don't even like it. I'm addicted to it, and I'm dying of lung cancer, right? So, the, I mean, people have real regret about smoking. They really do. They, they, they regret it. They say, I know I caused this for myself, and I wish I never would have done it. And it makes them really sad and ashamed, and it's, it's terrible, right? It's terrible. So patients that are diagnosed with cancer don't look back usually and say, I wish I would have eaten differently, because they don't have that in their mind that food could be a cause, right? But the one thing that they do do is they say, I'll do anything. I'll eat anything. Most patients, not all patients. I'll eat anything if this can help me live longer, you know, if this is going to make my life better and help me live longer, I'll do anything. What diet should I go on? What should I eat? Tell me. Right. And, and so I have patients in their grocery bags, and they go to such extremes that it's almost too stressful for them. And I'm telling you, you have to, you, know, you can't be stressed out about it. And, you know, I mean, stress is a bad, is a bad thing, too, you know. Right. So, so, so I'm I mean, it's, it's – go ahead. Yeah, I, I suspect that the people who are saying that – you know, now they say, they say, okay, now I know you've told me, now I know the risks, and I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm fine with it, are underestimating the impact it would have if they actually developed um, colorectal cancer. Well, so the thing is, I don't, I don't treat a lot of patients with colorectal cancer. So that would be a very interesting field to look at it in because a lot of people are cured with colorectal cancer, correct? A lot of people with colorectal cancer are cured. So that would be an interesting population to kind of broach the diet. You know, mm -hmm. with me, with me, I, I treat a lot of brain tumor patients who, again, like I said, you know, there's a 3% five-year survival. There's a 3% five-year survival. So these patients are thinking, you know, the median survival is about 12 months. So, they're sitting there thinking, yesterday I was canoeing and I had a seizure and I was, you know, I found out I have a brain tumor and I'm going to die in 12 months, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Um, so these patients, the patients I treat are saying, I will do anything. I will do anything, you know, to, to, because they're just not, they're in shock, you know? Um, you know, it would be interesting to look at colorectal cancer patients, the ones that are potentially curable, and after their surgery, say to them, hey, you can increase your cure rate if you eat a diet, you know, high in plants and fruits and vegetables and in fiber, you know? Um, it would be interesting to see what they, what, you know, if they would do that or or not. I suspect that you're going to find two groups of people. You're going to find the group of people that say, you know, I'm going to do everything that's changed my life. I've had an event. And then you're going to find a group of people that say, I don't, I'm going to continue living my life the way I, I have it. I actually ran into a guy who's a kind of a celebrity. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was a celebrity on a sitcom many years ago. And I was on a radio show and I, was talking to him and he said, oh, I had colorectal cancer when I was 35. And I said, wow, you know, I said, oh, well, you know, what have you done to alter your risk? And he's like, nothing. And I said, well, you know that there's an association with processed meat and a lot of red meat and in a, a diet high in fruits and vegetables has been shown to reduce, reduce your recurrence risk. And he looked at me and he said, oh, well, I'm not going to give up meat. You know, I'm, it's okay. And so I don't know if he didn't believe me or if he just, I don't know. I don't know what the psychological, you know, insight behind that is. I mean, um, it, it was really interesting to me. It was just last weekend. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling myself getting anxious about brain cancer now, just talking to you. Um, are, what, what, what are the, imagine, are, imagine working in my field, you know, every eye twitch, every, you know, I get a twitch in my eye and I think I need an MRI, you know? Uh-huh. So, so I'm wondering if there's what, what the research is on causation. You know, I, I know a lot of people are thinking that's, you know, that there's an epidemic because of cell phones or, you know, radiation towers or drinking water or chemtrails or, you know, like everyone wants to have some sort of explanation. Is there one? Is is diet a part of it? Or at this point, is it just, there's, does it just look random? Well, there's not a link. There's not a link. Um, you know, they've got, they've done some, again, faulty studies. You know what I mean? I mean, every study has faults. And, you know, the link between brain cancer is, again, there's no distinct um, link, uh, causation, cause. Um, they did look at a study where they, again, again, this study is, you know, they took 122 patients with brain cancer and they took it, looked at 122 matched controls, okay? And this was published in the Journal of Neuro-Oncology. And what they did is they found that if you had a stressful event or if you have a family history of brain cancer, you had an increased risk of brain cancer. They found out if you had a diet high in fruits and vegetables, and interestingly, if you skipped meals, you had a decreased risk of brain cancer. But again, you know, this is, you know, what, you know, 244 patients, small study, matched control study, retrospective, you know. So it's kind of hard to draw conclusions from that. But um, again, if you have a brain tumor, you're going to say, well, that's important to me, you know. Um, 
stress reduction and eating a diet high in fruits and vegetables is important to me, you know. Right. And there are definite, definite, definite links between high blood glucose and brain cancer. We know that, you know, that, that uh, patients that have higher blood glucose live significantly shorter times. Actually, you know, if you can keep your blood glucose under 90 with a, a glioma, you can you have a significant survival benefit over chemotherapy. So, so does, you know, does that chemotherapy look, so... gives you a very short survival benefit, but keeping your blood sugar, again, this is retrospective data, but keeping your blood sugar under 90 had a, a, a five-month survival benefit, if I'm thinking about it correctly. And that 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 so, translates into a a modified version of a whole food plant based diet or a diet you know a paleo diet in which you're eating lots of protein and skipping all the carbs. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. Um, and there's a lot of research in the field um, into a ketogenic diet. You know, um, which is so. So they've looked at ketogenic diets in pediatrics for many years for, to treat patients with epilepsy. And let's, let's just define, and, that, define ketogenic diet for folks who may not know okay, what it means. Yeah. yeah. So a ketogenic diet, a true ketogenic diet, is a 600-kilocalorie diet that's extremely high in fat. Okay? It's basically all fat. Okay. And um, they used this in pediatric epilepsy for years um, to control seizures that were uncontrolled. And they think the reason, they think that ketones, if you think about it, ketones are what's produced when we break down fat in old times when we had famine. You know, when we were starving, we break down fat. But ketones protect our diaphragm, our heart, and our brain. They were meant to be protective agents. So the thought is, is that in the ketogenic diet, the thought, we don't know this for a fact, there's no, been no human studies looking at this, that... If you have ketones, that you will protect your brain, but not protect the tumor cells because the tumor cells require sugar to grow. They require sugar for their own metabolism, but the brain cells do not require that. So that's the thought behind it. I mean, that's the scientific hypothesis behind it. And, I mean, there are studies, including our own institution, that are looking at that. Um, you know, I'm open to it. I mean, I'm, I'm not – I'm not – I think there's a difference between prevention and treatment, first of all. And I also think – I also think that we don't know why the whole food plant-based diet works in different cancers, right? In colorectal cancer, it may work because of the increased fiber. But in other cancers, in, in – more hormonally driven cancers like breast and prostate, it may work because of the lack of hormones that the dairy the dairy introduces. In brain tumors, it may work because of the low glucoses that you obtain. You know, your diabetes is completely cured if you do a whole food plant-based diet. So we don't know why those low blood sugars in these patients benefited them. Is it because of the insulin growth factor. I mean, there's a, there's all kinds of pathways, MAPK, MAP, you know, kinase pathway, mTOR inhibition, insulin growth factor one. And, and again, I'm throwing out all these different scientific pathways that people are looking at. But again, we don't know why it happens. So, you know, 
I'm excited that people are looking at, at nutrition as a treatment for cancer finally. Um, but we'll see. What is it really the ketones that is important, or is it really keeping a low blood sugar and having antioxidants that would that a whole food plant based diet would give you on board? Gotcha. So they're looking at that. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so I'm going yeah. to uh, suggest a resource for folks who are listening who want to follow this up more. Um, in the book that uh, Garth Davis wrote that I helped him with, Proteinaholic, Chapter 13 yeah. talks about all the cancer evidence. And because of the World Health Organization report and all the media frenzy around it, we, um, we've put it online for free. So if people want to go to proteinaholic.com slash cancer, you can download that chapter right right from the website. And it, it talks about mTOR and it talks about a bunch of the various pathways by which it's uh, surmised that... Um, that meat, that animal protein contributes to cancer. Right. Um, so I would like to give you um, $100 million and okay. find out what kind of, what, what your research agenda would be. You're, you've talked about, you know, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's some bad studies, here's a, a sort of preliminary, um, you know, set of evidence that, that, that is suggestive. You're clearly convinced at some level that plant-based diets are good for us. If you had $100 million, what, what research would you direct? I would, well, I'm a neuro-oncologist, so I would take all brain tumor patients. Because I think, I think brain tumors, especially glioblastoma multiforme, which is one of the most high-grade forms of brain tumors, is very, very resistant to any therapy we've tried, right? So if I had $100 million, I would take brain tumor patients first, I would take as many brain tumor patients as I could. So I would take, you know, the whole United States and randomize them, again, randomly allocate them, so people believe my study, to a whole food plant-based diet, a kind of ketogenic diet, a modified Atkins diet, and then a placebo arm. But again, I would do it like I would, I would have them be paid attention to, right? So each arm would get similar visits, would get dietitian help, things like that. So we can't, we can't say it's that. And if you can show a reduction in brain tumor, like I have anecdotally in my patients, but if you can show that in a study, in a, in a very rigorous scientific study, and I would get correlative, so, you know, you would, that means you would draw blood, you would get tissue and send off tissue to the lab to see changes in different pathways that you mentioned. If you can show that in a tumor that has been so resistant, so resistant to anything we've thrown at it, I think that would be very, very, very powerful for the whole oncology community, if not the medical community at large, you know. Um, another cancer that would be interesting to look at, not just brain tumors, would be pancreatic cancer, only for the sheer reason that that is a cancer that we have tried to throw everything at, and we've, we've really kind of, you know, we, we, we make a little bit of progress, but not enough. And if we can make progress in these these cancers that are so resistant, so ugly, and so aggressive, then what are you going to, you know, what can you say about the cancers that are kind of really treatable? 
So I think that's where we need to do it. I think rigorous scientific study with, you know, big names, lots of patients, randomized data, great statisticians. If we could do that, like we run drug companies that are run with $100 million, you know, they have $100 million to do it. Uh-huh. I think that we could, I think we really, really, it would, it would rock everybody's world. And what's what's and I don't of... think we I don't think we need to do prevention because the thing is if people believe that treatment works then they'll automatically believe that'll automatically extrapolate to pre- that prevention works. So if mm-hmm. you can treat a cancer that you already have then I mean you you might be able, you know you should be able to prevent that cancer. Right? That's fascinating. Um, so what sort of outcome measures would you, would you want to see in these studies? Would it be, you know, 20-year studies of, of mortality or at least, you know, for brain cancer, five-year well, studies? Or, you know, are you just looking at like, benchmark, in, benchmark? Yeah, that's the good thing in brain cancer. It's, it's pretty much glioblastoma, if you look at it, I mean, pretty much our statistics are the same as statistics, you know, across brain tumor centers across the world, it's pretty much 2 to 3% five years. So it's, it's, it's a number that we have, you know. Mm-hmm. If you can make a difference and make that 10%, so I think overall survival would be something to look at. And I think um, if you can make the brain tumor actually physically get a response with diet, if you can have a response or regression. Like I have seen in my practice, I mean, I've seen patients' tumors regress. If you can do that, I mean, again, we're not trying to convince the patient here, right? The patients are convinced. We're trying to convince the medical community that diet affects cancer. Mm-hmm. Again, the cardiologists have done a great job. You know, they've done a great job that if you eat healthy, and we're not, we don't have to reach the consensus on what really healthy is, but if you eat healthy, you're going to reduce your risk of heart disease. That, you know, endocrinologists have done a great job. If you don't eat sugar, you know, if you eat a healthy diet, you're going to reduce your risk of diabetes. I don't think anyone can debate that, you know. But I think everybody in the medical community, well, most people in the medical community, if you tell them you eat healthier, you can reduce your risk of cancer, I don't think they'll believe you. I think that you can say, well, if you reduce your obesity, you can reduce your risk of some cancers like breast cancer and endometrial cancer. But I think to just say you're a skinny person and you eat healthy, you're, you may have a reduced risk of cancer. I don't think they'll believe you. Mm-hmm. I've tried. You know, I've told many people. I have My partner is a colorectal doctor, and I showed him the Mediterranean data, and he didn't believe it. And he said, I'm going to review this study, but I still don't believe it. I'm still going to eat meat. And he treats patients every day that have colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the, the idea of dose response. And, you know, all doctors are familiar with that in terms of, um, you know, drugs that the, you know, you have to get the dose right or the, you know, the, uh, the radiation or everything else. But there's also a dose response around convincing patients to, to try to change their lifestyle. I think a lot of doctors had the idea as well, they're not going to listen to me. They don't quit smoking. They don't exercise. 
And what they're doing is like two minutes at the end of the visit, as opposed to, let's say, an Esselstyn five-hour fire and brimstone uh, uh, intervention. What's, what's your thought on what sort of dose response of motivation slash convincing slash education is needed to, to make sure these, these randomized clinical trials don't just end up with a type 3 error where the people didn't actually follow the diet? Right. So I think that that if you have $100 million, that would be easy, right? Because you could buy the food for them, correct? You could give them an actual, you know, like, like Nelson Campbell has done, you know, where you actually provide them with the food and they have diet diaries. And, you know, the ideal, the ideal setting to do this in is to lock them down. You know, you can't, you can do that with cholesterol. You can do that with sugar. And we talked about doing that at our institution, putting them in a, a lockdown facility where they have no access to McDonald's, no access. They only have access to the food we give them. And then looking at the, looking at their, you know, LDL, HDL, and sugars, right, for diabetes and cholesterol. However, that doesn't help you with cancer, right? I mean, you can't lock them down for 10 years. Right, unless you create, like, Biosphere 3. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't do that. But what you can do is you can, you know, look at – I mean, the best you can do is look at compliance, diet diaries, have dietitians that work with them you know, once a week for hours, like you're talking about with Esselstyn, you know. Um, um, I think it'd take more than $100 million to get physicians to spend an hour a week with all these patients. But, you know, dietitians, if you can get dietitians to spend, you know, that time with them, I, th I think you can really you can really show a difference. Again, I think it's important to do it in these really resistant cancers, you know. Mm -hmm. Again, something that Nobody's ever seen a benefit. We've thrown every drug we know at them. It's immunotherapy, you know, agents to modulate their immune system, surgery, radiation, different radiation techniques, different kinds of chemotherapy. Everything we've tried, we've seen very little progress, if no progress. So it would be interesting if you see progress in that field, then I think you can really start to at least change people's minds if not pique their interest. Right. I'm, hear, I'm hearing so Frank's I'm hearing so Frank Sinatra. What I'm thinking about after talking to you is the psychology of the position you're trying to change, you know? It's the, it's the psychology of the medical community that you're trying to change, you know? Uh, you're right. Oncologists think differently than surgeons think, than, than, um, than cardiologists think, than, you know, everybody else thinks. So... That's an uh, interesting perspective, too. Right. Well, yeah, in my head, I'm hearing Frank Sinatra singing New York, New York, right? So if whole food plant-based diet can make it here, then we, right. it should be able to make it anywhere. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, it is. And, you know, and what, what, one thing that's interesting to me that I would be like to look at in, in a human study is, you know, I read a quote once that said, moderation is for the weak, Right. And the question is, can you do the plant-based, do you have to do it 99 to 100% pure, or can you do it 80-20? You know, a lot of the animal data looked at it 80-20. I mean, didn't see a difference until you reached about 15 to 20%. 
so, you know, my patients are all asking me this. Do I have to be, I mean, this is so rigorous and I'm willing to do it if you think it's going to make a difference in my cancer. But, you know, can't I have that occasional, you know, it's my last Christmas. Can't I, my last Thanksgiving, probably, can I have a piece of turkey, you know, at Thanksgiving? And so that's a question I don't know the answer to, you know, I I don't, I don't know what to tell them. So I would, I would be interested to look into that too, as well. You know, mm-hmm. can you do it in moderation and still have an impact? You know, I, I educate my patients when they first start out, I tell them to go completely extreme because I don't think they know. So the only way to learn is to really kind of cut it out of your diet completely. And cut, that's the way you learn how to get plant-based food, you know, in living in, in the real world. But I don't know the answer, and I don't think anybody really knows the answer. I mean, um, because Esmolson's data was so rigid. But what if, you know, the dose was 80% plant-based? Would that have – would he have obtained the same result? I don't think he thinks that he would have. I don't know the answer to that. But I think that would be interesting, and I think that would be more palatable to a lot of patients, you know, if they could do 80-20. And it, occasionally, once a week, have, you know, have an egg in the morning, a scrambled egg in the morning, you know, because I'm, t- I'm dealing with patients that are dying, you know, and they're saying, I have six months left to live. You want me to give up? You want me to give up, you know, everything that I like? I, I can't drive. I can't have sex. I can't work my job was my life and I can't work now and now you want me to give up now you want me you're telling me I have to give up me you know um or I'm gonna have to give up you know sugar and so what I usually tell them is don't you know choose the love not the fear I saw Oprah I saw Oprah in um at a seminar and one of her topics was choose love not fear so she said You know, I always thought the opposite of love was hate, right? I always assume that. But she says the opposite of love is fear. So the question is, are we doing the plant-based diet out of fear? Or are we doing it out of because we want to live this luxurious, spa-like, beautiful life? And that's what I tell them. You know, you're going to feel better. It may make you live longer, but you're going to feel better, and you're going to be able to enjoy the time you have left with your family members feeling more alert, less lethargic, you know, you'll you'll be able to do more of the activities. You can go to the golf course, whereas maybe if you're eating all this sugar and everything, you're not going to be able to, you know? Right. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about them from a different perspective than I think other diseases are talking to them about, yeah. you know? Well, and from my perspective, you know, when I eat junky food, it's because there's something wrong with the rest of my life. <laughs> Right. So, right. so that I'm, I'm compensating and, uh, you know, that I don't need, I don't need to eat this, the sorts of things that, you know, are going to create a quick dopamine response if I'm living a happy, joyful, loving life. Well, and that's, the, you know, you bring up a really good point. This is probably the most stressful thing that's ever happened to them and their family. Sure. And to ask them to take away that dopamine, I mean, a lot of them can't exercise anymore, right? Because the brain tumor or whatever tumor has decompensated them, you know, they can't work. So they may have gotten, you know, pleasure from their work and recognition at work. They can't drive, which gives them control, right? 
you know, driving, making a left turn. I had one patient, he was in the hospital for two weeks, and he left, and he got in his car. And we thought he was never going to come back. And he came back an hour later, and he said, I just wanted to get in the car and have control and drive and turn left when I turn on my left-hand blinker, you know? And so I find with my patients, this gives them a sense of control for some patients. And for some patients, it's just another thing that I'm taking away from them, you know? So again, it's it's a it's a also a personality thing, you know. Um, you know, they're meeting with the most stressful times in their lives, and you know, they want to just go home and have that cake. You know, they want to go home and celebrate and have a steak. You know, um, because they think this could be. They don't know if this is their last steak. You know, right. So it it's hard, but. You'd be surprised. There are a lot of people out there that say, I don't care. I want to feel better, and I want to do whatever it takes. So, Right. You know. And one, one of the lessons I'm put on this earth to learn, apparently, in my life is the difference between self-care and self-indulgence because some, mm-hmm. sometimes the line is blurred. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean um, use, we use food as celebration, as evidenced by birthday cake. Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, Christmas cookies, you know, I mean, food is something for celebration, right? And we associate it with, we associate it with that. So when you take that away, or you change the way people eat, you're almost taking away their joie de vie, you know, they're just taking away their joy of life, you know? Right. Um, but I, a lot of patients, I, I think Patients are smarter than we give them credit for, you know. I mean, they understand the implications and they see that, you know, relationships are important to them. They want to live long enough to see their grandson born, you know. They want to live long enough to graduate from college, right? So they're okay with taking out what we, who are not faced with that entity, um, they're okay with taking out those indulgences sometimes. So they, they are approaching it from a very different perspective than we approach life, you know? So before, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about uh, the film and the movement Plant Pure Nation. Which you're, 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 in, yeah. you're in the movie, which is um, yeah. where I discovered you and your work. Um, tell me a little bit how, how that came to be and, and what's important to you about it. Well, it's a funny story because I told you Dr. Campbell came to speak at University of Cincinnati, right? Right. And he came, he came there, and then a couple weeks later, he called me back, and he said, you know, we're, we're making this movie, and we want you to be in it. I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I was really excited. And then he said, well, it's in two weeks. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't, I can't do this in two weeks. I got to, you know, I gotta, I'm going to be on camera. I got to go really hardcore. Maybe I should do the Atkins diet to prepare. I was just kidding. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was really, really funny. I was like, Dr. Campbell, I got to get my shoes. I got to buy shoe, new shoes. I got to get my hair done. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> he was like, I don't know what to tell you, Rekha. <laughs> so, but, but, um, you know, I was really excited to be a part of it because, the one message that I really wanted to be get across that's really important to me, as you can see from this interview, is, is 
talking to the medical profession to take a better look at this. I'm not saying you have to accept it. I just want you to take a look at it. Just think about it. Just put it in your brain, you know? And um, my, actually, it's very interesting. One of my mentors um, was a um, chief of hematology oncology at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And, you know, Cincinnati Children's Hospital is was number one in cancer by U.S. News World Report last year. And he's one of my clinical and personal mentors. And um, he is a scientist to the core. I mean, lab, you know, spent many years in the lab in Seattle um, and is a, is a really a scientist and a skeptic. And after that, you know, he came to me and he said, you know, me and my wife, we start putting turkey in our chili. And I said, oh, that's great. And, oh, by the way, he runs five marathons in five days kind of person, right? Huh. He's an Ironman, three-time Ironman, and then, you know, that, that kind of person. And I see he started looking into the data, you know, with ultra athletes and um, also, you know, how to improve his performance as he aged. And now he's completely plant-based. So um, this is about a year and a half later after thinking about it and researching it. So just by presenting it to him, I didn't have to convince him of it. I didn't have to talk to him. Just by presenting the data to him, a year and a half later, he's been com completely kind of converted, you know? So I think my point of being in that movie and why I was so excited to be in the movie was to say, if I can touch one position, and I don't even have to present them the data. They can go look it up themselves, you know, and look at it and change their lives. I mean, I mean, we could impact millions of people, you know? And so that's why I was really, really excited to be in the movie and the movement, the kind of, kind of doing with, you know, kind of changing the medical profession too, as well as, you know, as well as a grassroots movement. Right. And it's, it's so, at some point, we're really, we're really, go ahead. Yeah, at some point, I imagine there has to be a tipping point just in terms of best practice, in terms of what insurance companies um, allow and, you know, chastise doctors for, that at some point, if enough people are doing it, it becomes normal, and then a lot of fence-sitters are going to jump on board. Well, you know, I'm getting a lot of patient referrals and from my colleagues and from people because patients want to hear about this, you know, the patients want to know about how they can use diet to modulate their cancer. And I mean, we're going to have to change. We can't, we can't just be, we, we have to grow and learn and change, you know, um, as a, as a subspecialty and as a medical community on whole, and medical communities are slow to change, but I think we have always changed, especially in America. You know, we're always looking for the, you know, what's new and what's changing. And I think that, I think we can, I think we can do it. I think it'll, it'll, I think 10 years from now, nobody will even, you know, nobody will say, they may not believe it, but they will say 10 years from now, people are going to say, if you ask any doctor, they're going to be like, I heard about that. And here's my thoughts on it, but at least they've heard about it. You know, there are many physicians who haven't even heard about this, mm -hmm. like I did. You know, there are many oncologists who have never even heard about diet modulating their cancer, their patient's cancer. Right. 
you know, they think that integrated, they think that integrative medicine is all supplements, uh-huh. supplements and, and cancer. But I'm not a big supplement person. I'm saying eating right can affect your cancer. It can really affect your cancer. And it gives people hope. I have a patient um, who met Dr. Campbell, and she's 28 years old, and she has a brain tumor, a bad brain tumor. And she came to me because she wanted my advice, and I told her to read the book, and she read the book. And now she's on a purely plant-based diet, and she met Dr. Campbell, and she started crying. And she said, you gave me hope. You know, you gave me hope that there's a better tomorrow for me. Mm. And, it, 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 you know, that's, you know, that's all we want to do for our patients and for our, ourselves, you know. Their hope that if I live this best life, stress reduction, whole food, plant-based diet, exercise, then if I get cancer, you know, I did everything I could to change my epigenetics, you know. Then if I get cancer, you know, that was my destiny, you know. Right. So, you know, you can see that I'm I, I'm not as – I try to be objective in this thought, but it's philosophically a journey for me as well. I can, yeah, I can hear that, and I'm uh, I'm in awe of the the leaps you've made and the ways in which you're acting as a bridge between the community of, of oncologists and, and medical practitioners in general and this and this new world. It feels like you're playing a really important role as a translator and communicator for these these two groups that that don't quite know how to talk to each other yet. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's, I'm thinking about it all the time, but it's exciting. More and more people are thinking about it, and more and more people are in awe. I just got back from a, a meeting in Tuscany, Italy, where we had about 20 people who are um, kind of leaders in thought in, not medical leaders, but leaders in thought in, in Cincinnati. And we presented all this data to them, and they were just in shock. I mean, they had never heard it. You know, of course, they're not affected by cancer or illness or – and they were in shock. And since we've gotten back from that meeting, they've been thinking about it and looking at it. You know, there's a branding company there, and they're like, how do we brand this so more people – you know, it doesn't have the association with the, you know – the far left and, you know, this association with the kind of hippie lifestyle or, you know, Eastern lifestyle. It has an association with an American diet. It's the new American diet, you know? It's not a Mediterranean diet. It's the new American diet, you know? So... That's what we need. We need some rebranding too. <laughs> I'll get I'll get I'll get my team right on it. Yeah, can you work on that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still trying to find the the, the person who named nutritional yeast because I think they need to be fired. Oh, I know, I know. It's like why, why, why? It's the best but, food. It, ta- it, it, it it sounds like uh, something horrible. I know it sounds it sounds terrible, but that's what we had. We had two CEOs of a branding company there, and they were thinking they were like, oh my gosh, you know, you branded this wrong. You know, the association with you know, you know, the skinny, you know, how are you going to get an athlete to do this if you have, like, the skinny, vegan kind of, you know, hippie mentality? That's what people think of when they think of a plant-based diet, right? You know, um, and my husband, you know, even when he started this, he was like, how do I reconcile that with my image of an athlete who is, 
you know, hard-charging, aggressive, capitalist, ambitious businessman, you know, physician, how do I reconcile this image that you have with the plant-based diet with that, you know? And I think what's really helped in that arena is the amount, amount of athletes that have embraced it, you know, Venus Williams, Tony Gonzalez, um, for the Atlanta Falcons, the football player for the Atlanta Falcons, you know, those kind of people that are kind of saying, you know, you can be an athlete and you can be a strong man or woman and be beautiful and be sexy, for other words, and still be plant-based. Right. Well, you it's, know? it's another it's another New York, New York strategy, right? If, the, if it works for right. them, well, it's certainly going to work for me where I have far fewer demands on my body. <laughs> yeah, but if it works for somebody who's going out and taking a beating every week and a professional, other professional football players, then why wouldn't it work for me who takes a walk, you know, three mile walk, you know? Exactly. So. Good points. Good points. Well, I don't, I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you've got a, uh, you've got a, you've got a busy week ahead of you. So, Dr. Rekha Chowdhury, thank you so much for taking the time. No, thank you for talking to me. You make me think about a lot of things. Sometimes when I speak it out loud, I, you know, it makes me think, how, what would be the perfect study? What would be the perfect thing? So thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, great honor. All right. It's nice meeting you. You too. Be Hopefully well. Hopefully our, our paths will cross again. I hope so. Maybe in Tuscany. <laughs> yes. You, you, you know what? I will keep you in mind. I'll talk to the coordinators of that. Ooh, cool. All right, everybody, you heard it here first. <laughs> All right. Thanks a nice lot. Nice speaking to you. Bye-bye.